welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. So we're actually going to be finishing up our little tour of Texas, actually, with our last uh, three guests here. So we've gone from uh, UT Arlington to Mm -hmm. UT San San Antonio. And now we are talking with uh, Kyle Gullings, who is at UT Tyler. So we've just been making a circuit um, <laughs> of all the uh, UT system uh, universities here. Um, <laughs> but we have a great conversation with Kyle about his work uh, with openmusictheory.com um, and the things that he has going on with that. Uh, before we get into the, the conversation, uh, let's hear a little bit more about Dr. Gullings. Dr. Kyle Gullings is Associate Professor of Music Theory and Composition at the University of Texas at Tyler, where he also served as Director of the School of Performing Arts from late 2019 through May 2023. His opera and chamber vocal compositions have earned him national finalist recognitions in the National Opera Association's Chamber Opera Composition Competition and twice in the SCI ASCAP Student Composition Competition. That's an alliteration. He is a co-author of the free online open educational resource music theory textbook, Open Music Theory Version 2, and his peer-reviewed articles appear in Engaging Students, Essays in Music Pedagogy, and the NACWAPI Journal. I sometimes would, would get into the trap of just only asking those really base level questions of, can you identify this chord? Can you write this scale? And uh, just just realizing that that you know that any topic, even if it's a fundamentals topic, can somehow be applied to, if you do some creative thinking about it, to some sort of higher order um, thought. Uh, and so so putting some some time into like m- moving up the the Bloom's taxonomy of like it's not just re- re- memorization, it's not just um, you know being able to see something and put a name to it, but it's actually like either analyzing something or or contextualizing it or I don't know for us composers on the recording uh write a new piece of music and involving those topics Kyle we're so happy to have you on the podcast to talk with you about your work um, with open music theory and just all the assignments that you have made and because I was doing some research and I'm like holy smokes you've got a lot out there and so we're excited to talk with you and see how you find time to sleep still. Uh, But before we get into all of that, uh, we always like to ask our guests a little bit about how they got into music theory. And um, I'm assuming it wasn't just the thought that you might get onto a music theory and pedagogy podcast one day, (laughs) if podcasts even exist, or if you knew that podcasts existed back then. Uh, But what really kind of brought you into the, the music theory world? Yeah, I mean, getting on that this podcast was, of course, the the ultimate goal um, <laughs> that I think we all share. Um, mm-hmm. No, I, I honestly wasn't aware of it until until you and I met uh, Paul this this year, and I'm a little embarrassed to say that. I'm so happy now that I've got fifty something episodes to go back and listen to. I'm I'm honestly, in, in all seriousness, very 
very excited to get to get back into you know diving into that. I've listened to a couple episodes, and that'll maybe come up come up later. But um, how how did I get into music theory? Um, I'm a bit of an outsider. I still feel like, and probably always will, in the music theory community because uh, none of my degrees are in music theory. Um, my, my my undergrad was in music theory and composition, but really it was mostly composition, and that was my you know my my senior project was a composition recital, and then both of my graduate degrees are in composition. Um, but how I fell into it kind of on accident was I've just kind of always liked doing theory, I guess. Um, and so I'm a composer by training, but I, I fell in, in, in love with music theory pedagogy along the way. Um, I actually, uh, still today in my, in my current chair role, um, actually do and enjoy music theory teaching more than, than composition. And that's always been more of my job, um, as you might imagine. Um, and, and so I, I love it. Don't tell all my composition colleagues that, but I, I, if I had to give half of my job away, it would be the composition side. And when I became chair of our department in 2019, that's, that's what I did. I hired somebody else to do the composition so that I could keep teaching uh, freshman and sophomore theory in particular. I just, mm -hmm. I just love it. Um, if I could just only teach that uh, for my teaching career, that, that would be fine for me. Um, so I got started um, in undergrad. I went to Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota, a liberal arts college. And um, so they're very big on, you know, exploring different options. I was a music composition major. Um, I had minors in theater and English writing for some reason. 19-year-old me thought I was a poet uh, or a playwright. <laughs> um, that's, that, that minor taught me that I am not a playwright or a poet. Um, but uh, one of the things that that allowed me to do was um, design a special topics course for myself um, during my junior year that was supposed to explore potential career paths. And, uh, you know, I, I not knowing I had was doing so, I had essentially created a um, graduate TA ship <laughs> in, or I guess an undergraduate TA ship, maybe you'd call it. Um, as a junior, I, I sat in on all of the music theory one um, lessons and taught a couple, I think, two or three 20 minute sessions uh, on specific topics that I had prepared ahead of time. But mostly I, you know, attended theory one again and, and graded worksheets. Um, and so that's really kind of where I fell in love with with teaching music theory. I didn't really see it as a, a thing to do. You know, at the time, my current career path was uh, go write musical theater for Broadway, right? Which which my dad, who's a dentist who does not have any musical experience, was like, "That is not a job. You know that, right?" Um, he's he's almost he's almost right, but uh, thankfully I, I fell into that. Um, from from there, uh, you know, I think like a lot of us who ended up uh, teaching this professionally, um, I, I was a TA in grad school. Even though I was on the composition side, I spent. Um, uh, so my master's and my doctorate are both from Catholic University of America in Washington D.C. Um, and uh, both in composition. And but so I spent, I guess, four or five years there um, as a as a TA teaching theory courses. And by the time I left, it was kind of a traditional TA ship where, you know, there it was kind of under the supervision of a particular teacher. And, you know, we, we met very regularly about the the resources and the, the learning expectations. The first couple of years, it was not in, a, not in a terrible way, but it felt a little bit like the Wild West where I, I, I you know, my second year there, I, I was when I started teaching and it really felt like, you know, here's the Casca pain, start in chapter eight and get to chapter 15, see you in April. You know, uh, that was kind of my, my introduction. Um, and so I really was, you know, like instructor of record and we had, we had weekly meetings and I could always ask questions, but it was, it was a little bit like, how do I teach this? What specifically do I teach? You know, it was just get through the book. Um, and so 
So I, I kind of like that experience. I don't know that I would wish it on, on other people, but it was good to kind of be thrown in the deep end when I didn't really, I didn't really know. I mean, I knew, but I didn't know at all, like how to, how to teach, you know, uh, uh, and harmonic modulations or things like that. And by the time we got to that, it was just, you know, I'm just reading a chapter ahead of my, of my students. Um, anyway, so let's see, I've been taking a long time. How did I get to music theory? So on accident sideways, um, while trying to become a composer, um, and then, like I mentioned, uh, the majority of my teaching load here at UT Tyler, University of Texas at Tyler, which is where I've spent all of my professional career since getting hired in 2011, um, was, as you might expect, teaching music theory. I would teach three or sometimes four music theory focused classes. Uh, and then the composition stuff was kind of whatever's left over, you know, the three or six composition students we, we had. Um, and so because of that, I, I made a decision really early on in my professional career to because of where I got planted, right, because of where I ended up with the full-time position um, to really invest a lot of my time and my research time into the theory side, even though I didn't have that music theory PhD kind of credential and background and official training. Um, anyway, I could probably go on, but that's uh, that's kind of how I got into theory. It was was on accident, but a, but a happy accident. I 100% relate because I'm, I'm right there with you with none of my degrees are in compos are in theory they're in composition uh my my undergrad is in theory composition but again it's this little it was a little liberal arts school so you know mm -hmm. it was and it was really primarily composition so um that's part of the reason why I, I wanted to do this podcast is so i could meet people because i'm such an outsider too <laughs> <laughs> nice working um, your way into the community that's right that's right Good. um but i think that that brings a different perspective and what we'll, we might get into this later in the conversation but i think there's actually and what i've learned um in talking to to folks is that a lot of people are not on that kind of traditional track. There are a lot of kind of, you know, closet composers, as it were, you know, that got into it or were into performance or education or other things. Um, but along the way, this is pretty much universal. They found music theory and they're like, yeah, that's that's the thing. That's what I want to kind of latch on to. And, um, and so I think it's I think it's really interesting. Um, so um, one one of the. Um, I think I, I saw you present at a um, CMS. I think Jen and I were at the same one. It was a mm -hmm. CMS thing in Oklahoma, maybe, or something like that. But you were presenting mm -hmm. on open educational resources and talking about kind of the, um, the assignments that you've created, which are now um, available on JMTP's website and things like that. And so can you talk a little bit about kind of the, the task that you put yourself into in creating basically... <laughs> um a curriculum's worth of assessments and assignments together what made you do that um and what did you learn a small feat it's <laughs> no, a for, massive job yeah yeah i mean uh i i did it because i was didn't have someone older and wiser to tell me not to i guess <laughs> um but in in seriousness you know i i i started here in 2011 um, i first became aware of uh, version one of openmusictheory.com, um, I don't know, in late 2012 or maybe 2013. I'm not really sure when it came online, but that's when it crossed my radar for the first time. And I had been using the Cascapane Tonal Harmony um, from 
you know, as a freshman in undergrad. And that's also what I taught all through, uh, through grad school. So it was like the only book I had any experience with. Um, I did take a music theory pedagogy class, uh, much to my, my graduate school's uh, credit. They, they didn't send me out into the world not knowing anything about teaching. So we, we, we did get to review quite a few books there and talk about, about uh, approaches. Um, so good job, Catholic University. Uh, but, but, uh, but really, Casca Payne was the only thing I knew from a, from a functional standpoint. And um, I may get be overstepping on some later questions, but I, I, um, you know, I teach at a regional public university. It's got about ten thousand students, um, and so we uh, are in a, a fairly rural area. Um, and a lot of our students are transfer students who go to community college, like about half of our music majors start out at community college and come here as juniors. Um, in East Texas, that's a really big uh, thing. There's a, there's a lot of really strong community colleges. And, uh, um, and a lot of our students, I don't know how a percentage, but a lot of our students work either part-time or some of them full-time while going to school. Um, and that tells me that they, maybe more so than some other student populations, um, are sensitive to cost. Right. Um, I think we all know that uh, going to school has uh, gotten more expensive over the last forever, but especially the last 15 <laughs> years or so. Um, but what a lot of people don't know is that the cost of resources, the cost of textbooks has grown, has outpaced the, the increase of college tuition and fees. You know, we know that tuition and fees is a, is a you know, sort of an exclamation point uh, 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 increase right it's, it's, it's going up in a, in a sizable way but 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 books and other resources have have more than kept pace with that with that increase um and when i learned that i i kind of made it somewhat my mission right to help these students in a really tangible way um not have to buy an expensive textbook um so i i, I found uh, open music theory and thought well i guess i should probably try to adopt this and at the time you know it was it covered quite a few topics. There were a few things probably that it was missing that it needed to have fleshed out. Um, a few things I've since had explained to me were covered in somewhat an idiosyncratic way that eh, anyway, that real music theory pedagogues, the people with the, with PhDs uh, can can explain to me. Um, but but the, the main issue I had as a, as a practical, you know, composer slash theorist was it didn't have any workbooks attached to it, right? It didn't have any assignments, it didn't have any exams. It didn't tell me what to cover at what time. Um, and so I thought if I'm really going to do this, it's got to be like a major part of my output, right? It's, 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 it's not like I can have them buy the textbook and then a little bit incorporate this free thing. It doesn't really do the job. So, um, so essentially what I did was I think starting 2013, my, the beginning of my third year, uh, on the tenure track, um, I pretty much hit pause on all of my traditional composing and other RSCA and said, I'm just going to do this. And I spent the next two years writing um, pretty much one or two worksheets a week for, well, I guess one, one worksheet a week, um, for, for the next like two years straight. So I started where the, the, the sophomore class was still on the proprietary text, but the freshman class was, uh, on, on, uh, open music theory, but it didn't have any workbooks. So I was like constantly writing, you know, worksheets and I got to where I was turning out, you know, one every week or two. And then the, the next year I was doing that for the upper division, or sorry, the, the, the second, second level. Um, and so that was pretty much all I did for, for two years. <laughs> um, and so you see my, my compositions kind of like disappear for a little bit and then they come back after that. Um, because of that, that's, that's really what I did. Um, so that's why I did it. I, I made that so that I could make that switch to open music theory and make it possible for myself. And then I thought, well, I spent so much time doing that. I should probably try to get it out into the world. I don't know a whole lot of 
famous music theory teachers. I didn't know anyone who had been on this podcast yet. Well. Uh, I don't think it. I don't think. I don't think it. Ex, I don't think it existed yet. It didn't exist yet. No. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. We thought. Yeah. Yeah. So we're all we're all building resources to help the community, right? Um, mm-hmm. But but I didn't I didn't have a big network of of professional theorists to to get it out in the world, and so I. Um, ended up submitting it to, to JMTP, their resources page, and they thankfully accepted that, um, which has uh, been nice. I still pretty frequently, either through them or through my own website, um, get, you know, uh, every few weeks or a couple of months sometimes, get, get questions about some of those sheets or requests to access, you know, some things on my Google Drive. Um, yeah, anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that other than to say that's, uh, that's how I got started on it. Oh, I'll take a follow-up if you're up for it. You know, some of us like to design uh, our own assignments. I know I'm a big fan of that. Um, Some people like to more import, you know, from a workbook like you've mentioned. Um, But kind of having done both, it sounds like you've kind of done a little bit of both. What kind kind of trends emerge? You know, what what are the features of the best assignments in music theory and then what are kind of the things that you know oh this one was in this assignment and ah i think it could have done without it can you kind of hit at some of those points for us because i think a lot of us are at this crossroads where i know i am i like some of the things i've designed myself but i don't want to i don't have the time (laughs) to do everything myself Mm -hmm. you know like you said you had to set everything else aside so, you know, if we were to create one assign- one new assignment or rework one assignment every semester, what are the things that we have to keep in mind? What are the real things we really need to know? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, you know, m- most of my answer to that, I think, will be just me saying things back to you that my Open Music Theory version two colleagues have taught me over the past several years, because they're they're really kind of the experts in, in the pedagogy side of the of as well as just the research of the field. But, um, you know, so, so the first couple of things, you know, accessibility, um, uh, ha, ha, if this is something that you want to share, not just with your students, but with other students elsewhere, um, you know, doing just a tiny bit of research about Creative Commons licensing. If you're if you're OK with other people taking your work and not paying you for it, for example, there's there's uh, easy ways to just slap a CCBY uh, license on that and, and let people know up front hey, you can take this for free as long as you say where you got it, for example. Um, and and so, yeah, Creative Commons and, and accessibility, also accessibility from a, a functional user standpoint, which is something that I admittedly don't know as much about as I need to. But, um, you know, that's that's one big part of our, our Open Music Theory version 2 revision was we decided early on we were going to put all of our uh, worksheets into MuseScore format, which was bizarre to me as a composer at first because I use Finale, right? <laughs> I'm an expert engraver, um, and and I I had never used MuseScore before, and and uh, it was a confusing world to me. But <laughs> but it, the, you know they really the, my my project co-authors really sold me on that when they basically explained not everyone has Finale, not everyone has the money to to, to use Finale, but everyone can get to MuseScore, and and then if they find an error in your in your worksheet or if they have something they want to edit about it or swap in a new example they can do that without asking you if you give them the right license to do so um so and then lastly uh, you know uh, well I, I guess somewhat related to that you know um thinking about diversity and repertoire which again is admittedly not something i had given any thought to really before i you know uh, approached this topic in terms of like what music are we teaching who is it written by and, and why is that important 
I think that's something that's becoming more and more important, not just to the field and the, the experts in the field, but also to the, to the students as well. And actually talking openly about that and saying like, hey, we're listening to this piece by this composer. You know, a, a lot of my students don't don't know who Haydn is anyway. So you might as well say, hey, but here's another person you don't know. Right. But I think it's really important <laughs> that, that students have, have a, a kind of a, a wide um, variety of, of music to look at. Um, what, one last thing uh, is, is, I guess, something that regardless of what format you're using and, or anything like that, um, really focusing if you're going to do one or two assignments really well. Um, this is something that I, you know, I got in the habit of just cranking these out, you know, once every week or two. And not all of them are these really like deep dives into music theory. A bunch of them are like, here's 35 math problems, you know, do them. <laughs> and, and, and of course, to some degree, that has its 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 utility and its need. But um, I sometimes would, would get into the trap of just only asking those really base level questions of, can you identify this chord? Can you write this scale? And uh, just, just realizing that, that um, you know, that any topic, even if it's a fundamentals topic, can somehow be applied to, if you do some creative thinking about it, to some sort of higher order um, thought. Uh, and so, so putting some, some time into like moving up the, the Bloom's taxonomy of like, it's not just rote memorization, it's not just, um, you know, being able to see something and put a name to it, but it's actually like either analyzing something or, or contextualizing it, or I don't know, for us composers on the recording, uh, write a new piece of music in, involving those topics. So that's that's something that you can't make every assignment like that because you do need to like learn the basics, but yeah, anyhow. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I've gotten some of the best responses to prompting students, why did you choose to have a particular timbre for this character or in this scene? Or I'm really into film music on these superheroes and villain things in the last couple of years, but I've showed students a scene and they kind of get a prompt that's non-musical and it's, you know, they don't even think about non-musical prompts. They're just thinking about spelling chords and like music theory is like chord spelling, you know? And I'm like, y'all, mm -hmm. theory is not about chord spelling. That's just a means to which you can build understanding, you know? And that very basic thought, you know, can come across in our assignments when we say, okay, write the five of two and then write the five of five and write the five of six, you know? And, it's great to get a mix, mm -hmm. like you say. I believe in doing some things for memorization and spelling and all those identification-based activities, but man, it really helps them connect to the art, the concept, you know, when you give yeah. those deeper level questions. I love that. Yeah, like what, one of the sheets, and I'm not sure if it's in my, my collection on JMTP, I think it is, but one of the assignments that I really like doing is in Music Theory 4, um, I've got this Schoenberg versus Stravinsky project that I tell them up front, this is the longest and hardest assignment I will ever give you in, in the lower division sequence. It's supposed to take you two or three weeks because, you know, my students don't know who Schoenberg is and they don't know who Stravinsky is. So how are they supposed to get to the end point of this? But but I have them, you know, uh, look at, at uh, uh, Schoenberg's wind quintet and Stravinsky's octet for wind instruments as kind of um, marking turning points in each of their of their styles and uh, you know the the early 12 tone approach and neoclassicism um, and and to take on kind of the the role of a of a music critic in a newspaper um, so they have to like the whole first section is just go read wikipedia 
for a little bit and then go read the specific spots on, on New Grove uh, about where they were in the 1920s and stylistically what that meant. And then, you know, they they look somewhat at, at uh, sonata form uh, or der derivations, I guess, of the sonata form or deviations of it uh, in the Stravinsky and uh, do some some 12 tone row finding uh, in the Schoenberg. And then at the end, they write an essay that that it's the only time I think in the whole sequence I asked them to do this where they try to outline the aesthetic aims of both of those composers and then mm. say which one is better, like which one did a better job of it and which aesthetic is better now that it's 1924, what should we be doing next year as composers? And I, I'd i say more than half of them get the idea of the prompt and when they do, it's a it's a pretty interesting thing to make them, even if they, even if they didn't start out knowing anything about these style periods or composers, it, it makes them really kind of engage with it in a different way than just pointing out the rows, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So. so open music theory, there are, what, seven authors, I think, listed on on open music theory. So very collaborative. Um, how does that work and how has that played into the resources that you've created there? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, uh, it's been it's been a, a fantastic project and one that I feel really really happy and, and honored to have been part of, um, to have been part of. That makes it sound like it's over. I'm not sure if it will ever be fully over, uh, but the bulk of the writing is is over. It's a usable. It'll never be closed. Product. Music theory. It's always open. Always open. <laughs> That's exactly what I meant. Yes. Um, it, more like I just know there's always more we can do to, to fix it or to add mm -hmm. to it, um, which is a good thing, but also a scary thing because it will never go away. Um, but that's good. That's good. Uh, and and so, you know, I, I'll, I'll talk first, if you don't mind, about kind of how I got attached to the project and then mm -hmm. talk about kind of the collaborative part of it. Like I mentioned, I, I had my resources um, published on, on um, Journal, Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy resources page. And then maybe a year or two later, I saw that the SMT conference was uh, being held in San Antonio. And I thought, wow, San Antonio, that's only six hours from me, uh, which <laughs> seems that's like a long way. But in, in yeah. Texas, that's close. Short yeah. drive yeah. in Texas. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, just a little just a little jaunt over to San Antonio. And so uh, I had never attended an SMT before, but I just I didn't have anything to present. I just went to, to see it um, and was kind of blown away, of course, by some of the some of the presentations. But that's where I met uh, Dr. Megan Lavengood. Um, who is the project lead for uh, the revision of Open Music Theory version two? Um, I know you all know her. She uh, was one of your one of your guests uh, um, on the, the pod. <laughs> there you go, friend <laughs> of the show. And uh, it's kind of weird because I've heard her her voice in my earbuds uh, a lot over the last I don't know three or four years because she's been the one kind of corralling us about hey we need to zoom we need to have a meeting about this we need to talk about the next stage in the in the chapter you know in the, in the project um and, but i've never really engaged with her research again i'm a composer i don't really do i don't spend a whole lot of time reading reading articles and and it was really interesting that i've got to hear her her uh, her episode on on uh, on what she does professionally and timbre and video game music and so cool um anyway uh but so she, so she kind of got us all together. I met her there. I think I also met uh, Bryn Hughes um, there, University of Lethbridge. 
and m maybe one of, one of the others. And they, they kind of assembled the team. And I got an email a, a month or two later saying, hey, we've got this uh, grant proposal due in a month or so uh, through the Virginia Consortium of Libraries um, that, that we, want to, we want to write this textbook. Um, and so that's kind of how I got attached to it. I think they were trying to uh, use those resources that you mentioned and, and have, me, have me in charge of the, of the workbook side. Um, yeah, collaboration has been a big part of this. Um, and this is something that I, I talk a lot about at um, you know, conference presentations, paper presentations, uh, whenever I get a chance to stand up in front of people, not only to, to say how important OER in general is and that universities need to do a better job of, of supporting and, and resourcing um, the development of teaching resources. You know, um, I think that's very important, sometimes overlooked. Um, but, but this is something that I say a lot in these types of presentations is this book is, or online resources, way more than it could have been if it was just one or two of us, you know, um, doing it by ourselves. Um, we all kind of have our own specialties. Um, Megan is, is obviously a, a pop music, among, among many other things, uh, a pop music specialist. And so she uh, took the lead on some of those. Um, and anyhow, so, um, yeah, so it's brought kind of a diversity of voices and, and, um, and frankly, just more structure, I guess, you know, if you've, if you've got six other collaborators and they all say, where have you been for the last three months? You go, oh, yeah, I guess I probably should work on that chapter. Uh, so it's been nice to kind of mutually su support each other in, in meeting some of those deadlines. Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll note that, you know, uh, it is interesting uh, going to a theory conference you know, as a composer because composition conferences or festivals are very different in that you only attend if you have a piece being played generally. Like I think pretty much nine out of 10, everyone is there because of a piece. And at a theory conference, that is not the case at all. You know, you might have only a handful that are presenting and everyone else is there just to learn and to um, meet each other and things like that. So it was like a really weird thing for me. I'm like, you're spending all this money or you're traveling and you're not even doing anything. You're just showing up. <laughs> it was just very different than like a composer mindset or a comp composition conference festival type of situation. Uh, but I think that speaks to like the collaborative nature of the field. And I think that's kind of what's exciting. And it's not that being a composer isn't exciting, but composing is a very individual thing a lot of the times. Like you're just by yourself, you know, working. And there is collaboration elements and opportunities, but it is a very kind of individual thing. Whereas theory is this more of a community. Have you found that similar to be the case? Yeah, 100%. I mean, and that's a little bit why I like theory pedagogy more than I like composing is because I can... <laughs> throw ideas at people and have them tell me what's working and what's not. Um, that, that for whatever reason is just not the way composition gets done most of the time. Um, and, and my background as a composer even speaks to that. I'm, I'm mostly a, a composer of operas, musical theater, and either solo voice or chamber works. And so I, I hate the idea of sitting down and writing a new piece of music and I don't know what it's about or who it's for. Like that just doesn't even terrify me it just bores me right <laughs> write a piece of music because you love writing music it's if it's not about something or for somebody i don't usually have any real interest um because of my my background as a composer was writing terrible musicals in high school right um with all my best friends and putting it on in the community theater and, and i i still feel kind of like in a way i'm kind of chasing that whenever i write a piece of music is trying to get back to that that collaborative sort of uh, focus mm -hmm. And so that's something that I really like about, you know, this group that we have at Open Music Theory, but also the, the field in general is that it's, it seems kind of supportive and, and like 
like you're kind of all doing the same thing together and trying to help each other, at least uh, from what I've from what I've seen. So, yeah, I, I definitely appreciate that. I mean, I think you could be the Lynn Manuel Miranda of East Texas, maybe. You know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I would, I would be honored if anyone were to call me that, or maybe like send me a send me a business card that says that. That would be great. Yes. Jeez. Add that to your bio. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I'm curious. So your your colleagues, your administrators, that kind of thing. Did they have any response to the idea of using an open resource textbook or open resource workbook? Did you get any pushback or did you get lots of like, oh, this is a great idea? You know, I mean, I'm at the kind of school where we have to run everything by each other. So if when I changed my textbook, I had to make sure the entire faculty knew and were aware and had the reasons why and all of that. Not every school is like mm. that, but other faculty yeah. often have a a sort of stake in the game when it comes to theory yeah. because all their students take it. Um, so I just wondered mm -hmm. if you had any response from your colleagues or your admin, anything like that about using an open resource. Yeah, um, not so much. Uh, I'm, I'm at a small school. When I joined here, there were seven full-time faculty in the department. Um, now we're up to, I think, 10, including the chair. Um, but it's still pretty small and I'm, almost the only person who has taught theory one through four since I got here in 2011, including since I've been chair. Um, and we, so we've got a pretty small program. So we don't have like trailing sections. We don't have a graduate program. So there's no TAs. So it's, it's kind of my own fiefdom in a sense that whatever textbook I say is what goes. So I've, I didn't really realize at the time that I was making these changes, what kind of a blessing that was to have that freedom to be mm -hmm. able to say, hey, this is going to be a change. It's going to be positive for the students. I'll make it happen. I just, the only real formal thing I did was I think I mentioned it to my chair. And when I reported my books to the bookstore, I said, not available or not, not, not applicable. Um, <laughs> but other than that, you know, at the time they weren't even tracking or counting OER use on campus. I don't think mm. it was just a thing that few enough people were even doing or aware of, um, which is too bad. I probably could have gotten some, you know, internal or system grants to redesign my course if I had just waited two or three more years. Um, but that's okay. I'm happy to have done it. Um, but yeah, so I didn't get a lot of pushback from colleagues because I'm kind of the theory, the theory guy here and didn't get a lot of pushback from my administration because they just kind of said, Okay, what, what what textbook do you want to use? Um, that that and that's probably a challenge at bigger schools where there's multiple theory teachers or, like you said, multiple different areas or divisions within the school that have a vested interest in what's being taught and how it's being taught in the theory curriculum. I imagine that could be that could be a one of the challenges of of implementing something like this, especially if you've got multiple teachers with different sections. That can always be. Right. be difficult. There's actually only so. seven full-time folks at my university as well, um, but we have okay. teams of adjuncts, but it's just kind of our policy that we're very collaborative like that, that we, yeah. if, if we're making major shifts in one of the areas that everyone gets to weigh in and say, you know, sure. I think that's great, or here's a concern I have in how it affects my students or whatever. And I, I'm yeah. grateful to have incredibly supportive colleagues, but I also realize that it might not work that way everywhere, <laughs> that there might be places yeah. where instead of them being like, oh, you're changing the book to make it more diverse and applicable, that sounds great. You know, there are places where that wouldn't be the response. So I was just curious, sure. you know, if yeah. you had any. Yeah, no, that's a, 
reactions. That's a great point. Yeah, no, I, I didn't really get any pushback. The only downside was, as I kind of jokingly alluded to earlier, I basically put my research on hold for years three and four of my tenure track and, and didn't publish anything. I, I got a couple of compositions I had already written, um, you know, out on, on the conference circuit a bit, but it, it kind of hit, hit pause for a few years on my, on my research. And looking back, I realized now there's, there's nowhere in our operating procedures or our TMP documents that say, if you author, you know, a textbook, a, a, a class textbook, or if you author uh, resources or OER, this is the way that will be viewed in your tenure application mm. or your promotion ap application. Um, if I had put more investigation into that, maybe I would have made a different decision, but I, I would like to think not. But um, that's something that I think that administrators and, and faculty senate and departments can really work on a lot is ask themselves if they care about how much uh, their schooling costs where they teach. And if they do, uh, if that's important to their students, then, you know, is that in some way codified in, in their TMP document um, or in their, in their overall sort of university? It's one thing to say we, we give grant programs for people who want to adopt OER. It's another thing altogether to say it will be recognized and viewed in line with the scholarship of teaching, right? Some, mm -hmm. some institutions think that that's important and some individual reviewers or administrators think that's important but it's it's not it's not universal um, right. and even even on some campuses where some faculty or a certain department thinks it's important it doesn't necessarily mean upper administration will and vice versa so right. yeah, I, I think we all have a long ways to go in terms of recognizing that making teaching better and easier to get to is one of the core things we do as as professors and find a way to actually incentivize that yeah absolutely yeah, so I'm curious, how did you slot that in to your TNP? Because you're associate professor, so you made tenure, you did it. Um, but am, I'm just I curious um, about how you were able to position that because regardless if it's tenure or some type of promotional thing, um, these types of public facing or um, teaching materials or scholarship in teaching is sometimes hard to put into, you know, the, is it research? Is it teaching? Is it service? I mean, this podcast is a good example of well, what is this? Is it service? Is it research? I don't know, you know? Um, so how were you able to um, kind of work um, this, this uh, research um, in teaching into your, your kind of portfolio to, to benefit yourself in that way? Yeah, I mean, I, I talked about it both in the teaching and the research side of my letters. Um, and um, obviously it had a major impact on my teaching and it was, I think, the most influential decision I made uh, in, in pre-tenure to, in my view, uh, improve how I was teaching and what I was teaching and make it more affordable for students. Um, so I tried to make that case on the teaching side. Um, as sometimes happens, you know, the, the research side usually weighs a little more heavily, I think, uh, at, at a lot of institutions, even institutions like UT Tyler, which, um, you know, at the time had not yet moved up to the R2 research university that we became a year ago. Um, so we're very much a teaching you know, institution still. And, and you know, we teach a 4-4 a load uh, on average. And, um, and, and uh, yeah, so I, I made that case on the teaching side, uh, but also on the research side. And I won't go into any details other than to say it was not particularly heavily weighted on my on my tenure application um, the you know, and, and maybe that's because I didn't do a great job of describing these two sort of very unrelated 
aspects of my professional career, right? I am a composer and I write music and I get people to play it. And I do this music theory pedagogy stuff that, and I do this music theory pedagogy stuff because I don't have any degrees in it. And I don't, I don't do a lot of scholarly publishing. You know, I've done a couple of, I've published a couple of times in terms of like assessment or, um, or, or the use of OER in music in general. Um, but it hasn't been a, a, a major part of my, my scholarly output. And so it was a little bit, this other thing that I also did on the side yeah. kind of, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm trying more, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know exactly when, but within a year or two of, of going up for full professor now, that's how old I am, I guess. Um, and, don't worry, I'm already and, there, and, so nice. you're in good company. <laughs> good. And, 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 and this is one of the two major sort of linchpins, I think, of my application is to say, not, not just, look, I wrote 100 worksheets, but also, look, they're being used and they got incorporated into this other bigger mm -hmm. um, uh, resource that lots of people have used, you know. Um, yeah, anyway, that's probably all the details I should go into on my <laughs> on my application. But it, it yeah, I, I needed to do a better job of making that case that it's actual scholarship and that it's actual, um, uh, you know, w worthy of being considered alongside having been selected for a presentation. Um, yeah. But yeah, and you know, I, and I would say anything you're going to pour that amount of time into, you need to also spin into some level of deliverables, whether it's a, a, a scholarly article or uh, or or conference presentations, you know, papers, um, things like that, because uh, I felt a little bit apprehensive doing that at first, because I just kind of felt like a dude who wrote some theory worksheets, right? Um, I, and so I didn't know that I had much to share, but, but I sort of looked back and saw, well, I spent a lot of time learning what a Creative Commons license is and, uh, you know, implementing them in my, in my courses and trying to get people to use them. Um, maybe there's something useful in that journey for other people to to talk about as well. You know, so my I, I, I feel in a sense I've kind of been giving, especially at the CMS regionals uh, here in the South Central region, which I'm pretty active in. I've, I've been giving kind of different versions of that same talk for about six or seven years now. <laughs> it used to be what is OER and what is OER in music theory. And now it's more like, are you thinking about writing an online textbook with a group of authors? here's some things you should do up front to make it better. You know, it's kind of, I don't know, but um, yeah. So a little bit of a tangent answer, but. No, that's good. I think you're absolutely right that highlighting um, how many people that resource reaches is an important factor in the response from others when you're doing promotion materials. Uh, because I know yeah. Paul, all three of us actually have used the podcast in promotion materials and the stats of the podcast were a big part of it. It's not just, oh, we created this thing, but also like, this is how many people mm -hmm. have, have heard it. This is where it's been heard, things like that. And those make a difference. So keeping track of those things is important too. If you are, you know, listeners out there thinking yeah. I have unusual scholarship and I'm trying to figure out how to make it clear you know, that this is valuable and it was a great and important research way to spend my time, you know, having those stats yeah. is important, I think, and useful. Yeah, that's definitely, yeah, I, I agree. That's definitely something I overlooked, I think, in my run up to the tenure application, because it was just my resources at that time were just in two places. They were on kylegullings.com that got, you know, dozens of visitors a year and uh, and on on JMTP. But I don't I, it never really occurred to me to ask the editors, hey, do you have download right. stats? 
on, yeah. on that. That's probably something I should go back and do now, um, but I should have certainly done <laughs> at, at that time. Yeah. So that's, that's been really helpful in the, the, the online textbook. I can either go to a certain spot on our, our website yeah. editor or ask one of my more tech savvy uh, collaborators, hey, what are we at for page views or, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Well, get ready to get the note doctor's bump on kylegullings.com. So, yeah. I mean, like the Colbert bump, I think you used to have. Uh, right. You're gonna get tens <laughs> and tens of uh, views. Um, you know, are there any Good. kind of disadvantages of um, OERs? I mean, there is, or is it just maybe the creation of it? Is that kind of the biggest disadvantage? Because obviously the cost sounds great. Um, the accessibility sounds great. Um, but are there any other kind of disadvantages that you should think about before kind of implementing that beyond just kind of maybe the work in setting it up at uh, from the start? Yeah, I think there's a few things to be wary of, you know, um, when looking at how many different resources there are on our our website on openmusictheory.com. Um, it, it can be a little bit daunting as far as what topics you want to cover in what semesters, in what order, with how much time. Um, you know, I, I don't think I've ever been to a buffet dinner in my life and walked out feeling like I am happy with my choices and I am satisfied. <laughs> um, and and I've slowly realized that the reason for that is because my approach to the buffet is I walk up to the buffet, I grab a plate and everything that looks good, I put on my plate. And it's not just a matter of overeating, but of eating too many different things that all seemed good at the time. But, you know, when I really should have probably just, you know, picked the the filet and, the, you know, so the, the, <laughs> to narrow my choices and to, to be more aware ahead of time about making a plan about what my buffet curriculum will look like. And, and so I think that's, oops, uh, I think that's a, a something I've learned about myself, but something that, um, that can be daunting for someone who didn't, I don't know, help write openmusictheory.com is it's not meant like a lot of textbooks where you start at the beginning and by the end of semester four, you're at the end, right? There's, there's no possible way you can cover everything in there. There's way too much material. And it's, so it's designed for you to kind of curate it. But, and even though we say so in the preface, assuming everyone who's designing their courses with this reads the preface, um, <laughs> You know that's that's a big challenge, and it's not something you can just pick up the week before you start teaching. And and mm. you know now we're trying to get there. We, we would like at some point to say, hey, here's one possible path through the theory one through four sequence um, that covers these topics in this order and spends two weeks on this and three weeks on this. You know um, that would probably be helpful, but we're we're not quite there yet. Um, so that's one disadvantage is just kind of the dizzying array of of resources that exist even if you just only stick with ours for example there's there's just too much to fit into a to a standard four semester sequence by design um so so not saying yes to everything um there's probably yeah there's probably some other uh uh disadvantages um just the same disadvantage you'd get from adopting any new textbook right if you're if you're going to go from the cosca pain to the Marvin Clendenning, you know, then you're going to have to learn new material and a new way to teach it. So that's that's always a, a challenge. Overcoming that inertia, especially if you've got a heavy teaching load or a heavy research load, like, it's daunting to just even take that step. Um, oh, and and I, I may also mention we, you know, we don't have a publisher. We don't have a for-profit publisher or, or, a, or an academic press that's telling us this is what you have to cover by this time. And, and, and so that's also 
you know, although we have had a, a stage of peer review editing uh, that we had someone go through the book for for style and, and things like that, you know, it's it's not probably quite the polished uh, final draft that you might expect from a traditional physical textbook um, as well, because it's still kind of evolving in some ways. So that's sometimes a sometimes a disadvantage. Yeah, I think they're sort of they're modular. Am I like it's kind of modules and they're even I think listed sort of alphabetically fundamentals is first but after that yeah. it's sort of it's not like you you could trace down through those things like oh yeah theory one theory two theory three theory four it kind of goes you know in categories of of things chromaticism and popular music and form and counterpoint and things like that yeah and and that's always been tricky for me is you know do we cover the form section first or the harmony section first or do we do both of them and like you have to know about tonicization otherwise you can't talk about periods really in most mm -hmm. most practical applications so that's uh, in my own curriculum i kind of jump back and forth and do you know a, a little bit of everything yeah, um that you makes know, sense but but yeah it is it is designed that way for it's designed to be curated it's not necessarily already curated for you and the chapters aren't numbered, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can't just say, oh, turn to chapter 17, which is something that I kind of miss about the Casca Pain, right? I, I remember that, am I right? Chapters 14 and 15, at least back when I was teaching on that, were, were the last two that incorporated seventh chords into their part writing or something like that. Uh, you know, right. that, 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 that <laughs> I, I, I could at one point, like, quote, the whole textbook. I could yeah, even say like chapter by chapter on this same. on yeah. this page, right? There's this diagram. <laughs> so so I don't really. It's not a it's not a resource that's like that where you can you know follow now, in that sequence away. Now you may not be able to answer this because you may not have written the chapter on this, but you know the Casca Pain is a one six four book. You know, um, what is Open so Music I've Theory's heard. opinion on the one six four chord? <laughs> This is where the this is where the conversation turns very tense right now. I'm just gonna log out right now. <laughs> no, I so I always learned it as a one six four, and that made the most sense to me. But my my theory expert colleagues, I believe, uh, use the the cadential six four, the five six four dash dash five three. Uh, if that's what you're referring to, okay. and and I've reluctantly with this year is actually the first time I've I've adopted that notation as well. And I've got some students in my theory class who have some theory background, and it's awful hard to train them out of that and mm -hmm. try to convince them that this is the only chord where the Roman numeral doesn't match the contents of the pitches. But it makes sense from a functional standpoint to designate this as a cadential six four instead of a passing. Um, so, and I do, you know, I, I do, so, so, so my answer is I use the, the five, six, four as the cadential. Um, again, reluctantly, it's not how I was taught, but you know, uh, that, that I think it's an improvement and I can see the argument for it. So that's how I teach it now. But, but I'm also very open with my students um, about that particular issue, right? In as much as I know about it, I don't know. Uh, I, I explain what I understand of, of, of that contention. And I say, not every classroom does it the same way, right? And here's the functional approach to it. And here's the how the notes are spelled approach. And, uh, and here's why we're doing this one. Uh, I, I, I also, I talk very freely. You heard me earlier talk about um, Bloom's taxonomy. And I explained to them, because more than half of our graduates are going to go on to be music educators uh, at UT Tyler. And it's mostly what we turn out as band directors and some choir directors. Um, they, they need to know that, right? They need to know that you don't just only teach something for memorization. You also have these other approaches. And um, I, I find 
you know, and, and when I first got into OER and, and uh, spent all that time writing these these worksheets and then throwing them at my, un, you know, uh, uh, my unprepared students, um, I was very, very open with them saying like, you're the first person who's ever seen this worksheet. I designed it last Thursday. Uh, let me know if you see any errors. Um, but I think they really, they really, uh, they appreciate that, right? They appreciate being brought into the pedagogical side of it because they're in one way or another going to end up teaching somebody in, in the future. And I think that's, anyway, that was not your question at all. The five, six, four. <laughs> Well, it's a good question because it does hit at a little bit of people's core philosophies um, in a certain way. Um, I think you, you offered a really good answer to that. Mm -hmm. well, CAD 6.4 is an option. Let's just put that out there. CAD, CAD 6.4, yeah. yeah. I love CAD 6.4. I'm still a 1.6.4 person oh. because I have tried both 5.6.4 and CAD 6.4, and the students get it wrong over and over again. And so I finally just was like, it's a one, six, four. It's the only one where we, like you said, it's the only one where the label doesn't match the stuff. And I, I just was like, it's not, and we don't, we have de-emphasized part writing. We still do it, but it's de-emphasized in our curriculum as is figure base, all of those things. So they don't even know what figure base symbols are when we're introducing six, four chords. They have no idea. They know what inversion mm -hmm. symbols are. They don't know what mm -hmm. figure base is. Uh, they find that out in theory three. So, um, mm. Our music business majors never interact with that at all. Which so I think just, is appropriate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like they're, yeah. yeah, they're not likely to be recording, you know, period Baroque pieces where people are improvising on a, on an RO or something. So, you know. <laughs> Viola da Gamba. Think, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. How do you so, mic yeah, a Viola da Gamba? Maybe they'll have to know how to do that. Uh, maybe they will, but that is not what I have to teach them. So, you know, in the end, right. <laughs> like you're right, Ben, it is kind of a philosophical thing because for us, since we don't do figure based, since we have de-emphasized part writing, the 164 is the one that makes the most sense in their sweet little freshman year brains. So that's the one we use. Yeah. There you have it. <laughs> I love it. Well, I, I love I, this I'll, little I'll sidebar. I'll be honest. I don't. I don't. I'm not familiar with the the cat. So just C A D period six four. So we just like be be Switzerland about it and say well, it's That's not. Right. It's not. It's not any. It's neither. Neither of the above. It's uh -huh. just yeah. the credential six yeah. four. Uh -huh. Yeah. I'll go. I'll, I'll elaborate link. a little bit since you opened the door for that. I just have mine label it based on the function. So if you're analyzing and you come across a six four, don't use a Roman numeral. Tell us the function of that six four. Is it a passing? Is it a pedal? Is it arpeggiating? Is it a credential? And if you want to go beyond that, sure, okay, have your cake and eat it too. But I'll stick to those four and I'll have them label the function and just leave the Roman wow. numeral out of the equation. But that's, that's a hot take, so you know, <laughs> I'm sure we'll get some commentary on that in the future. But uh, nice, I will just let that sit. Yeah, all the commentary that pours in every time. Yeah, <laughs> every I'm episode. It. Yes. Tons of commentary about what we tons, say. I think you're tons. good, Ben. <laughs> nice. I appreciate it. Right. It is a Switzerland approach. No doubt. Yeah. For um, sure. And if a student asks me, I say, is music theory chord labeling? And I hope that they say no. <laughs> and I said, it's about a way of understanding. And if you put a passing 6-4, you're telling us you're expressing a way of understanding mm -hmm. how that passage actually works. 
Um, yeah. And I like that way of approaching it. I don't know if anybody else does that or not, but I just kind of morphed into that over the years. Um, yeah, I've never yeah. heard of all of them being labeled according to their function. I like that better than just like one of them is called a CAD 6-4. Everyone else gets their Roman numeral or right. whatever, you know. I like the idea that it acknowledges the sort of dissonance of a 6-4 chord. We are deep down a rabbit hole now. We are. We really are. <laughs> no, in How in all seriousness, I bet, I bet if you really emphasize that, though, that you probably get way less part writing problems that involve non-typical 6-4 chord use than I do, because I get it all the time. People don't seem to care what a 6-4 chord is. They'll just throw it in anywhere. 3-6-4, fine, right? Um, but I bet, because I don't really emphasize that as much, I do talk about it when they write it. I say, this isn't how we do things. But coming at it from that approach, I bet you get fewer of those than I do. You just have a lot of Adele fans with the three six four. That's what it is. Um, she loves the three six four. All right. So I should stop telling my I should stop telling my students that that chord doesn't exist. Then only if you're Adele. Okay. Gotcha. Um, but I think I think Ben, you bring up a good point about like the 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 function or just understanding how music works, and that's what theory is about. And I think composers have a particular knack at being able to explain how music works because composers mm. write it. <laughs> and so, <laughs> uh, so Kyle, you know, how has, you know, your composer background, you've kind of talked to like kind of an outsider, but I personally think that composers have a really unique and helpful perspective when teaching theory, because it's not like you're coming, you don't come, uh, theory comes after music almost all the time, right? You could say the 12 tone comes before like that system, but you know, all the theoretical concepts that we learn, it's, it's from music, right? The theorists look at the music and say, how does this work? Um, the composers aren't thinking, oh, is this, you know, is this a three, six, four? Am I allowed to use a three, six, four? No, Adele just writes it. And then theorists have to mm -hmm. figure it out. So mm -hmm. how has, you know, your career as a composer and your, uh, informed your theory teaching? Yeah, I mean we're we're applied theorists, right? Um, I like that. We, we we actually use it, or sometimes, um, <laughs> uh, or we're making music theory as we go. Um, yeah, no, I, I I'm a strong believer that uh, whether you're a composition focused faculty or student or not, uh, that composition has to be uh, has to have an important part in every semester of of the theory sequence right from the very beginning. Um, you know, even when you feel like they don't necessarily know enough to create a full-fledged piece of music, um, you've got to have, get them doing something creative and not just for creativity's sake and not just for engagement's sake, but because it actually demonstrates something qualitatively different than label this chord, label this scale. Um, you know, it's, it's showing that they understand it. They understand the topic's function and how it works uh, so well that they can go back and, and use it in the service of some specific project. And so so I have a composition project in every semester uh, of, of theory one through four. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I talk about Bloom's taxonomy while I'm introducing the, the composition project and tell them, look, here we are, we are at the peak. We're gonna go back three or four weeks to stuff you learned then and use that in the service of this, you know, cause now you really know it. Um, so I pretty much take concepts from the midterm and put that at a, at a semester ending composition project. Um, but uh, I find that most of my students are kind of terrified of composition at first, if they're not some of the, the, the minority of students who are composition majors. 
Um, but once, depending on how you package that project, it doesn't have to be write a minuet from beginning to end. Good luck. You know, it can it can be a lot more. I don't want to say hand holding, but you know, a lot more pared down than that, and and um, limit their kind of stylistic choices. Um, but you know, so we do we do a we don't do a ton of part writing as major projects, but we we do a, at the end of theory two, um, I assign a diatonic four voice chorale setting um, that follows the phrase model. It's got tonic prolongations, dominant prolongations in it, so a couple of other like boxes to check. But it's really just one phrase, chorale phrase. Um, and so this past year, uh, spring twenty three, um, our class voted to use. I make them write lyrics, and that's not graded, but they have to use them. And, and so I, I told them to, to write on a theme of love songs. Uh, it's really short. It's like 10 or 15 syllables, right? Because they can't, they can't set an entire chorale and modulations and all that yet. So, um, so some did love songs just to a generic or unnamed person. Some wrote lyrics to their dogs or cats. Um, I had one person who wrote a love song jing that was a jingle for Love's gas station, which I thought was just brilliant. Oh, it like doubles, nice. it doubles as a love song, yeah. but also as a jingle for the company. Um, so I think she should probably record that and send it in, see if she can get some royalties on it. Um, but but students really enjoy it. You know, you come you come to the class when they're gonna, and I make them perform it. I, I don't make them perform it in four voices, but I make them play at least the the soprano part and the bass part one at a time, and teach it to the to the class. Um, and we are the choir that sings it. Um, and you know, they they really enjoy having to do that. It incorporates the keyboard skills. It incorporates our part writing. Um, and anyway, so I I think that that's something that you shouldn't be afraid of, even if you don't call yourself a composer the way that I don't call myself a music theory scholar. Um, you know, I'll say I'm a music theory pedagogy, sure. But but um, I think it's something that people should really incorporate more if they're not already doing it because students like it and it shows that they know more than just how to check some boxes, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, our time has just flown by, Kyle. We've had a great time chatting with you um, and appreciate all the time uh, that you've uh, given to us at the end of the semester when things are kind of wrapping up. But we like to ask just some rapid fire questions, um, just off the cuff uh, questions to our guests to get those real hot takes. We've already had some hot takes, uh, so I don't know if we can get any hotter. Um, but um, Ben or Jen, do you, would you like to go first? Ben, are you ready? I'm ready if you're not, but you go can ahead. go. Go ahead. Okay. So what what is the one worksheet that we should all go look at and start using today? Oh, boy. I mean, I kind of already <laughs> said it, I think, but but I, I think you should go go find my Schoenberg versus Stravinsky worksheet. Just be aware that it's a, it's a hefty one, so they're going to have to do some reading and some listening before they can start it. But uh, I like that one a lot. Um, I did talk to my students for the first time this year about ChatGPT and how it actually gets, I typed the whole essay into it and it gets maybe an A minus. It's frighteningly good um, yeah. at convincing me that it knows what neoclassicism is. It just can't pull out the rose for me yet. So anyway, sorry, that was a long hot take. Um, you, sh you should go back and see that one. Okay, so I actually received a small uh, mini grant from my university to create uh, OER uh, resources, that's redundant, um, for my oral skills for class. All right, so um, I'm going to be creating uh, assignments and dictations and things like that over the summer. So give me your best advice 
before I go into this over the summer? For you writing it or? Or just in my, just going out and thinking about, okay, now I have to create these resources for this class. You know, do I, is there a process that you recommend or something to think about first? You know, cause it's kind of very open-ended right now. It is, yeah. I mean, you can always add more later. So get kind of a, what's the minimum size of the thing you need and get that done. If you're going back and forth between, do I need 10 harmonic dictations in every chapter or eight harmonic dictations in every chapter, just make six of them and come back. Um, you know, I don't know what, what the scope is of this project, but that's that's what I would say is is find out what kind of minimum to launch looks like, and then you can always come back and add to it for the rest of your life uh, if you want to. <laughs> and and it, if you choose to do so, if you really wanna make this uh, OER, so a lot of universities and administrators think that OER just means free, right? It just means I will give it to my students, but but it actually has a very specific meaning, right? That it's open, meaning it's accessible, that it's editable. Um, mm -hmm. so, so think also carefully about if you are gonna use a Creative Commons license, what type of Creative Commons license would you wanna to put to it? Um, is it something that can live online if you're not using other proprietary resources or, or examples, if you're writing all your own examples? Can it live online and can I steal it from you later? Um, I would love to. Uh, I don't teach <laughs> RL Skills 4, but I would love to tell my RL Skills 4 teacher to, to steal it from you uh, in, a, in a collaborative right, kind of way. Right, of course, <laughs> right, in a Creative yeah. Commons kind of way, right, yeah. yeah. No, that's great. The the minimum that is that is a good call because you could end up just down this rabbit hole where yes, I've created you know forty five lock dictations in modes, and now that's only one part of part of what I need to do. Good, right, for sure. I'll All go. right, Ben. Who's your favorite composer? Oh man. Um... That's a that's a that's a tough question actually. Uh, well, it's not it's not me. Um, <laughs> I, I guess if I, had, if I had to pick, I'd probably say Stephen Sondheim. He's the first person oh. who I became aware of that I wanted to to copy. Um, yeah, Sondheim for sure. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Inspiration for musical theater. That's that's mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So as we uh, wrap up, maybe let our listeners know a little bit about how they can find you if you want to be found out there on the World Wide Web um, and what maybe projects you have uh, currently cooking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can find me at kylegullings.com. <laughs> Uh, don't be fooled by the short haircut. I'm a long-haired hippie now, but uh, kylegollings.com, where you can see my compositions as well as some of the, the theory resources I have. Um, uh, of course, visit openmusictheory.com. That'll take you to version two, uh, redirect you to that, um, which is the theory textbook in one version or another that I've been using since 2013. But that's really, if you, if you explored it in 2014 or 2016 or 2018 and you found like it you needed more uh information or more robustness to it it is an entirely different resource now so if you haven't seen it in the last three or four years please go go check out openmusictheory.com so what did i say kylegullings.com openmusictheory.com and on my non-music theory side uh i'm happy to announce because it got announced officially a couple weeks ago that i'm currently working on uh an original orchestral commission for the east texas symphony orchestra um, they uh, commissioned me to write one big thing about East Texas is they love high school football. And so I'm writing basically like 
East Texas High School football, the musical, but without singers. Um, it's a major work, 20 or 25 minutes, wow. uh, dedicated to and honoring the, the culture and the people and the sport that is high school football in our area. So set your clocks for sometime in late March 2014, 2024, 2024. So in about 10, 10 months from now, um, y'all come out to Tyler and, and hear it. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast, and you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening.